About 76 million people are currently enrolled in the Medicaid program, and the Biden administration has identified protecting and strengthening Medicaid as a key component of its health policy agenda. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Sarah Rosenbaum, a professor of health law and policy at the George Washington University Milken Institute School of Public Health. Professor Rosenbaum has written a perspective article about policy and operational challenges associated with Medicaid transformation. Professor Rosenbaum, could you start by telling us a bit about the history of the Medicaid program? What was the program's original intent and how did it evolve over past decades? It's not surprising that Medicaid would have risen to the top of President Biden's agenda, considering the administration's overall commitment to health equity. Medicaid is a program that is, of course, our largest public insurer at this point, but from the get-go, it was built to achieve health equity. Its road has been a little bumpy for sure, but as an insurer, it has not only this core purpose of helping people who otherwise would be totally excluded from the healthcare system for all practical purposes to gain access, but it has features that enable it to do so. I mean, sometimes we say that programs have this wonderful commitment to health equity, but they're not necessarily structured to get the job done. Medicaid is a program as they sing in Hamilton, that is built to get the job done. And it operates by features that are absolutely essential to more equitable access to health care. The critical features being very, very comprehensive coverage, very low cost sharing, and interestingly, something that most people probably don't think a lot about, you can enroll in Medicaid at any time. It doesn't have open enrollment periods or special enrollment periods. If you need health care, you can go enroll in Medicaid, and the Medicaid program has to give you your medical assistance benefits as soon as you're found eligible. So there's no waiting periods. There's none of the features that we find in insurance, which, whether it's Medicare or private insurance, is sort of designed to manage risk. Medicaid embraces risk. And for that reason, it has been the go-to program for every strike on behalf of health equity over more than 50 years, from insuring poor workers to insuring people with disabilities to helping people with diagnosed breast cancer or cervical cancer who were uninsured. The list just goes on and on when you think about all the ways that Medicaid has been restructured to embrace the highest need, most vulnerable populations. And that's what makes it so special. It's designed to get this job done. And so it becomes a core feature for any health equity initiative. So despite all of that, the Affordable Care Act extended Medicaid coverage to many previously ineligible people, but not all states implemented the expansion. Why have some states continued to hold back? And what does that mean for public health and health equity in those states? Uh, You've put your finger on the most serious problem we face in Medicaid. There are many, many things we can do to strengthen Medicaid, support state Medicaid programs better, make the program work better for the people it's designed to serve. But the biggest problem we're dealing with right now is essentially the box canyon that the Supreme Court put the poor into in 2012 with its decision that upheld the constitutionality of the Affordable Care Act, but at the same time concluded that Congress had overstepped its constitutional powers by adding all low-income working-age adults as one of the mandatory eligibility groups in Medicaid. 
that Medicaid has a lot of state options and some state mandates, such as mandatory coverage of children or pregnant women. And so low-income working-age adults were added to the mandatory groups. The Supreme Court said, no, that is a bridge too far. Medicaid was designed to deal with traditional welfare populations, you know, what the English poor law basically would think of as the vulnerable, people with disabilities, mothers with babies in arms. I mean, real old, old time thinking about Medicaid as a welfare program rather than as an insurance program. And so the court said, you've overstepped, you can't just remake Medicaid as part of national health insurance and expect the states to come along. As you may recall, the challenge to mandatory coverage was brought by states that resisted covering this population. And so what's happened is that when the expansion went into effect in 2014, about half the states enacted it immediately, implemented immediately, But since then, although there's been movement, only half of the non-expansion states have come onto line, meaning that we still have, you know, half of those resisting states still out there. And some of those states, of course, are enormous. Uh, Texas, Florida, Georgia, North Carolina, Alabama, huge numbers of uninsured people. And even in states where voters voted by referendum to add the population, we have this same resistance. The biggest and most unnerving example right now being Missouri, where voters literally amended the Constitution to give people the right to coverage if they are eligible. And the Missouri legislature and the governor, despite the windfall of money, despite the fact that they have a surplus, despite the fact that they have all the legal authority they need to start up the expansion, are refusing. They are simply refusing. And so that tells you, I think, that what's going on is philosophical or ideological and not concerned about, say, the cost of expansion. The federal government funds nearly the entire cost of expansion. In your article, you describe several challenges related to President Biden's goal of protecting and strengthening Medicaid, including the difficulty involved in closing the Medicaid coverage gap. Why does the coverage gap exist and what's been proposed to address it? So the coverage gap, of course, is the resulting lack of coverage by about two and a half million people flowing from this 2012 Supreme Court decision that essentially makes it impossible at this point when it comes to this population to achieve national coverage and not unless states want to expand. And so you know, the choices are to just go along and leave two and a half million people exposed. And I should note that any state that expanded could at any time unexpand itself. You know, it's treated now like an option. And so, you know, Michigan could decide just to give up entirely and to give back the money and to take insurance coverage away from the expansion population. So it's not just these 12 states, it's the vulnerability of people in many, many of the expansion states where expansion could be subject to political battles. And so what is on the table at this point is how do we construct a default system that does two things? One is catch people who are 
in a situation where they have no way to get coverage. Their incomes are too low for the marketplace subsidies, which don't start until the federal poverty level, but they don't qualify for Medicaid in their states. So how do you construct a pathway for them while at the same time trying to incentivize the states that already have expanded not to unwind, mostly because the Medicaid expansion as part of a state program is the optimal result. So what Congress could do is certainly to make people in non-expansion states eligible for marketplace plans for, you know, zero premiums and full cost sharing. Just drop the premium subsidy level from the federal poverty level to zero income so that a resident of Texas earning the minimum wage, which is probably about 65% of poverty, could go and apply for a marketplace plan. That would be the simplest, cleanest way to do it. Another way to do it, which has been talked about, talked about during the campaign, but it seems quite unlikely in the current climate, is to set up a whole separate public insurance program and have people who don't have other pathways to coverage eligible for public insurance. And yet a third way is, I think, something that stems right from the Supreme Court decision. The Supreme Court did not say that Medicaid expansion is optional. What the court said is that all these people are entitled to Medicaid, but the federal government can't force the state to effectuate the coverage. That's technically or legally actually what the court held. And so what the federal government could do is to step in and say, we recognize you as Medicaid eligible and we will effectuate your enrollment by letting you enroll in a marketplace plan that not only is free to you, but has some extra benefits the way Medicaid tends to have more benefits than marketplace plans. It's essentially what Arkansas did. Arkansas sort of showed us the path forward for using the marketplace to run at least big chunks of the Medicaid program. And the federal government could say to a state, it's absolutely true, you can't be made to give these Medicaid beneficiaries coverage, but we can do it and we can use our marketplace to do so. So there are pathways to a default system. And the trick is to combine those pathways with incentives to the expansion states to not give up, giving them some extra money for remaining an expansion state letting them modify expansion in certain ways that would be minimally restrictive on Medicaid, but at the same time, a little bit more flexibility. But people are thinking about some extra money for staying in the program as the big step forward. Are Section 1115 experiments part of all of that? And are they generally going to be a positive or a negative? So, of course, Section 1115 of the Social Security Act which, of course, is the same part of the United States Code that holds the Medicaid program, the Social Security Act, was until relatively recently this kind of obscure section of law that people who really do a lot of welfare reform work knew about. It was added to the Social Security Act in 1962, and it was added by Congress at the request of President Kennedy so that his administration in sort of the early days of what ultimately became the Great Society, his administration could experiment with state-administered public welfare programs to make them work better for people in need. That was the purpose of 1115. They were supposed to be time-limited experiments with evaluations so that 
results could be presented to Congress with recommendations for reform. And over many decades now, 1115 has been used in Medicaid sometimes to do experiments that actually, you know, may not make the benefits better for poor people, but restrict them in some ways. Although even then, typically those reforms are coupled with other changes like broadening eligibility on the one hand and allowing some restrictions on the low-income population who already have Medicaid on the other. After the Supreme Court's decision in 2012, the Obama administration turned to 1115 to allow some states to expand Medicaid. I mentioned, of course, that about half the non-expansion states ultimately expanded. So some states expanded and they did so on a demonstration basis and they altered some of the benefit rules. They altered some of the cost sharing rules. In the case of Arkansas, they added that this whole use of the marketplace rather than traditional Medicaid coverage pathways. But on balance, of course, what was being gained was the expansion. That is, the Obama administration was using 1115 to mitigate the effects of the 2012 decision to achieve expansion, although under slightly more restrictive rules. And some people didn't like the trade-offs, but it was very hard to argue. And the evidence suggests that real gains were made in the experimental expansion states. Along came the Trump administration, which proceeded to stand 1115 on its head by using 1115 to essentially pursue what they termed experiments that were really a political agenda. And two things in particular were its focus. One was to add a work requirement to Medicaid Back when Congress overhauled welfare law in the mid-90s, they specifically rejected a work requirement in Medicaid. Congress again rejected a work requirement in Medicaid in 2017. Nonetheless, the Trump administration pushed for work requirements, and the administration approved a whole bunch of state work requirement experiments, only one of which was implemented before the court shut it down, and that was an experiment in Arkansas, which proceeded to blow up in the state's face, to put it mildly, immediately 18,000 people, all of whom were either working or exempt from the experiment under the experimental rules, lost their coverage. The court stepped in, stopped the work experiments, as simply unsupported by any evidence. 1115 is like any agency action. You can't just make stuff up. You have to have you know, a reasonable amount of evidence to proceed with an experiment. And the court said, this just doesn't even pass muster. You disregarded all the evidence of what this kind of ill-considered, poorly designed foray into work requirements would do. That case actually is still pending at the Supreme Court, even though the Biden administration has now shut down the work experiments, because Arkansas has resisted simply ending its experiment. They are clearly holding out probably for a negotiated settlement with the Biden administration. I should note the other kind of experiment that the Trump administration approved one of before it left office, because I think only one state was sort of brazen enough to try it, and nobody really knows why because it's so damaging, 
And that is a Medicaid block grant experiment, which also has been rejected by Congress on numerous occasions, block granting Medicaid, because, of course, it leaves states terribly exposed in the event of any unforeseen costs and threatens to unravel the whole program and bring coverage down with it. The administration approved a block grant experiment in Tennessee. That approval has now been challenged in court. We are waiting to see whether the Biden administration tells Tennessee, just like it did with the work experiments, we're not going forward, we're pulling the plug, which it can do. Administrations can say, this is not a priority for us, we're not gonna fund this experiment. But I think there's a bigger question here, which is whether it's time to really think about 1115, whether we want to build some guardrails, some ethical guardrails, some protection guardrails. The Trump administration sort of demonstrated how easy it is to drive a truck through 1115 and claim you're doing experiments when really all you're doing is an end run around federal law to make up a new program that you want to run. And of course, the people who are the victims in this are the people who are most vulnerable to health equity concerns. And so I do think at some point, the administration is going to have to come face to face with whether 1115 has just simply gotten away from us all. And it's now so far from what it was intended to do that we need more safeguards so that this kind of abuse doesn't happen again. An additional challenge relates to winding down Medicaid's special COVID-19 public health emergency protections. How many people might be removed from the Medicaid rolls at the end of the public health emergency, and how could the Biden administration prevent negative health outcomes that might be a result? So, of course, as the pandemic was just demonstrating to all of us the true magnitude of what it would do to the country, in early March, Congress enacted legislation, and it was bipartisan, and it was signed into law by the Trump administration. And one of the provisions in the legislation did something very important, very well understood by those of us who, of course, spend our time in Medicaid policy, but not so obvious to the rest of the world. And that was to specify that during the pandemic public health emergency, people who were enrolled in Medicaid, whether they were enrolled at the time of the passage of the law or thereafter, would remain continuously enrolled and wouldn't lose their coverage. Now, if you know anything about Medicaid, Medicaid is famous for what we call churn. That is, people come on, people fall off because, of course, the eligibility levels are very low income. People have an acute need for medical care, and then they let their coverage lapse because you can do that in Medicaid. And Medicaid is a true safety net program, and it's a program that operates with a lot of restrictions on it. And so churn has been a constant issue in the program. This law was designed to eliminate churn, which it did. It stabilized enrollment. And in some states, enrollment really rose substantially, particularly in states with very, very limited eligibility rules to begin with, like a Texas, where people who were on or people who came on could stay on because, uh, well, for parents, for example, in Texas, the eligibility level, if you can believe it, is 20% of the federal poverty level, 20%. And so If you manage to get onto Medicaid, you kept your coverage through the pandemic, meaning you had full coverage for preventive care and treatment and aftercare. And this has been a wonderful thing. But at some point, the pandemic is going to end. 
And the state programs then face the challenge of how do you carefully get people off the program and the Biden administration, how do you get people off the program over time? Do states need, in fact, some step down assistance, you know, so that you're not literally sending letters. Remember the way Medicaid works is every month eligibility redeterminations are happening and people sort of cycle on and off over the year. This is going to mean that in some states you have phenomenal numbers of people all losing their coverage at once. And so whether you have a step-down system, whether you amend the step-down expectations to allow continuous coverage to go on for people who are in the midst of a course of treatment for at least for COVID or COVID-related conditions, people who are, say, long haulers. The Trump administration put out very premature guidance way before the pandemic was done. And the guidance was mostly designed to tell states how quickly they could and were expected to get people off the program, as opposed to very careful step-down guidance so as not to result in this huge bolus of lost coverage at once or people losing access to care. And of course, underneath the individual coverage, you have the plight of healthcare safety net providers that because of stable enrollment have been able to keep revenue flowing from the program they depend on the most, community health centers or public hospitals, in order to keep care going to their communities. And so they're in danger of suddenly having, you know, their world rocked by a major loss of coverage. So it's an operational issue, but there are enormous policy questions. And really, it's a kind of challenge that we haven't quite seen before. And even if the pandemic technically ends, we know in these communities where poor people are concentrated and where Medicaid matters the most, the effects will be the most significant. Finally, You've talked about a number of possible options for change, but what policies for strengthening Medicaid do you see as most feasible given the current political environment in the country? Well, I think there is some pathway to the coverage gap solution. As long as everybody colors inside the lines, meaning obeys the Supreme Court's edict that we can't punish states who don't want to ensure this population. I think there is a sentiment that we really can't leave two and a half million people uncovered, number one. And so to the extent that we have another round of health coverage reforms, I expect something to happen for this population. Additionally, President Biden, of course, is as part of his huge infrastructure proposal has made the very wise recommendation, in my view, to invest in the human infrastructure, which in the Medicaid context, of course, is long-term care in communities. And I think there's a lot of sentiment for trying to do something to improve the scope and quality of community-based long-term care services. It's one of Medicaid's great great achievements. Without Medicaid, the Supreme Court's 1999 decision holding that Medicaid beneficiaries cannot be unjustly institutionalized if they don't need institutional level care, that decision wouldn't have meant anything because there would have been no home and community care alternatives. And so Medicaid has been built up and built up to provide community care But there's much to be done. There's huge waiting lists for community-based health care. And I would expect that even if it's not viewed as an infrastructure issue per se, we might see some consensus around community care improvements going forward. 
it's tended to be an area of common ground. Thank you, Professor Rosenbaum.